Alrighty. I got a game to play. I'm just going to pick one of his. Daniel Misak. I can see. You. I'll stand right next to you. So come on up, man. I'm going to play a bit of Jenga. I'm just going to move this mic. This is yes, Dad. Woo! Yeah, yeah Dad. All right, let's go. You stand on that side. And uh, you take the first one. That's a pretty good choice. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm just going to go with this one. Yeah, you got to put it on top, man. Have you never played Jenga before? This is pretty tense right now. Make sure you get a good piece. Whoa. Oh, he's got a good one. Yeah. Thanks, man. Game over. You win. <laughs> Today, where um, we get to a point in Galatians, it's a high point of Galatians. It's a bit of a climax. Um, if you open your book, your Bible, you'll see that high point at the end of chapter 2. So the end of chapter 2, take a look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is a big statement, right? It's fundamental to the Christian faith. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for absolutely nothing. It's like this Jenga tower. These blocks that are at the bottom of the tower are absolutely fundamental to holding the whole tower up. As soon as you remove these bottom pieces, the whole tower falls away. Christianity crumbles. It falls away. It is totally worthless and is of no value at all if righteousness can be gained through the law. It's by faith in Christ crucified. So, of course... Paul is flipping his lid about protecting this. Yesterday you saw Paul is furious. People are changing the gospel. He's defending the gospel. And today you see why. He's defending the gospel because this thing that he's defending is fundamental to holding up all of Christianity. Why don't we pray before we jump into this? Heavenly Father, um, pray that you would please give us understanding and wisdom and insight As we we go through your word and look into Galatians, we thank you for the privilege that it is to um, look into your word. I pray that as we do, we have open hearts, hearts that are ready to see and understand what your word is saying to us. pray that um, the things that we learn wouldn't just be head information, but that it would flow into our lives, into our hearts and hands, what we do and think and feel. I pray that uh, we'll be able to walk away from this week having looked at Galatians and being very convicted of what um, we've got to stick to and hold to. I pray that um, the words that I speak would be clear um, and easy to understand. And pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Alrighty, so um, the first thing we're going to see, I think you're on page 22 in your little booklets. Um, The first thing we're going to see is that the gospel is plain. It's very simple. Have a look in verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1 says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Remember yesterday, Paul was, he was flipping his lid. He was angry about this. And here it is again. He's calling the Galatians fools. But how is this building Paul's argument that we're justified by faith and not works of the law? There's meant to be a stack of emphasis on the word crucified. If there was another way to be justified before God, would it be really necessary that Christ was crucified? Crucifixion is an extreme solution to the problem of our sin, especially because who are we crucifying? The Son of God. We're crucifying God. Really, that sounds like the most expensive cost to God to fix the problem of our sin. And that's exactly the point that Paul is making. That's why he finished the end of chapter 2 by saying, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It would be like paying for something twice. You couldn't. You can... If your mum's like bought something for you and then you pay for it again, it makes one of the payments worthless, totally pointless. And so this is saying you can be justified before God by Christ paying the cost for you or you can just earn your own way by your righteousness. No, that would make Jesus' death completely pointless if there was another way to become righteous. No, we're supposed to look at the cross and see Christ crucified and go, whoa, that's what it took to justify me before a holy God? I would have never made it on my own. The gospel is plain. It's simple and it's absolute foolishness to turn away from it like we saw yesterday. So Paul says in verse 1 here, you foolish Galatians. And in verse 3, are you so foolish? You idiots, how could you be so idiotic? And the Galatians should have known that this was the gospel. They should have known because it was clearly portrayed to them, Christ crucified. And they should have known this gospel because of how they experienced it. They should know the gospel because of what they experienced. So Paul says in verse 2, read with me. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Receiving the Spirit is Paul's way of saying you've been saved. When you receive the Spirit, it's amazing because God is saying he considers you righteous. In Geordie's talk yesterday, we saw that God is a holy God. God cares about justice. He avenges evil. He will not tolerate wickedness. God will not tolerate having wickedness even in his presence. And we're sinners. We're wicked. We've sinned. We know this. How can we be in the presence of God? But that God gives us his spirit shows us that God considers us righteous because he's uniting himself with us. So when Paul says, how did you receive the Spirit? He's not questioning whether the Galatians are saved or not. He knows that they've got the Spirit. He knows they're united with God, that God considers them righteous. But he's asking them, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of the law 
or by believing the promise. We should be asking, what promise? What, what is this promise? What is he talking about? What promise? Well, it's the promise of the gospel, right? Our sin has separated us from a holy God and the gospel promises that we'll be rescued. It promises forgiveness for sinners before a holy God. The Galatians are Gentiles, right? They're not Jews. They've never heard of the gospel until Paul rocks up and preaches it to them. So the only way that they were saved originally, the only way that they became Christians was by hearing the message of Christ crucified and that reconciling them to God and that they believed that. They believed the promise of the gospel. It's only after that this it's only after this happened in their history that these Judaizers come along and say, well, no, you actually have to obey the works of the law in order to be justified, in order to receive the Spirit, in order to be united with a holy God. Paul is shouting at the Galatians in verse 3. It's like one of those howler letters in Harry Potter. So verse 3, it says, Verse 3, where are we? It says, Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort or by means of the flesh? You Galatians began by believing the promise of the gospel and receiving the Spirit. And now you think that you have to add works of the law in order to get the Spirit? You idiots! Have you ever had those moments where you, um, you have a pat down for your phone? You lost your phone. That was me the other week. I, um, I lost my phone. I was down at the beach. I thought I'd left my phone on the beach. So when I was up in the car, I go, oh, I don't have my phone. Where's my phone? Oh, I must have left it down the beach. <laughs> so I ran down to the beach and I was just like looking on the ground at first. Where's my phone? Can't find it. Oh, must have been buried. It must have been, someone must have kicked some sand over on accident. So there's like people either side of me and I just start digging holes, looking for my phone. And it's like sunbaking people being like, what is this guy doing? Just digging random holes around everywhere. I wonder what they're thinking. They're just like, this guy's a maniac. What is he doing? And I'm just digging, looking for a phone that's like worth hundreds of dollars. So I really want to find it. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to ask this person. So I turn around. Just, I normally never talk to sunbaking people. And I said, have you seen my phone? And she was just like, oh, you freak bag, get away from me. <laughs> like, so weird. I was just defeated. I walked away, couldn't find my phone, walked up to the car. Moment of genius. There's a Find My Phone app on my wife's phone. I can just punch my Apple ID into my phone and bingo, it'll locate my phone for me. I left it at home. It's never on the beach. <laughs> oh, man. The, the Find My Phone app made everything I did on the beach entirely pointless. It was worthless. But imagine someone came up to me and they said, Jasper, Jasper, you can find your phone with the app, but to really make sure that you can find your phone and make sure that it's at home, first you've got to look all over the beach, you've got to dig holes everywhere, you've got to talk to all the strangers and ask them if they've seen your phone. You've got to scale the whole beach and then you'll know that it's really not on the beach and it is at home. Only an idiot would do that. Only an idiot would search for his phone on the beach after having located it with his app. You would say to me, Jasper, are you so foolish after finding your phone by means of the app? Are you now trying to find it by your search on the beach? 
It's crazy. That's exactly what Paul is saying to the Galatians. He's saying, Galatians, are you so foolish? After receiving the Spirit by believing the promise, are you now trying to receive it by works of the law? You already have the Spirit. You found it. And Paul's drawing from their experience. They should have known the gospel because of what they experienced. So have a look in verse 4. He says, have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Or I think um, he says, have you experienced so much in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because of the works of the law or believing what you heard? As Christians, we don't have to go looking around everywhere for things that we already have. We're saved from the search on the beach. What do we have? We're forgiven. We're accepted by God. We have the Spirit through faith. We don't have to look anywhere else to find these things. So Paul moves on from here. He's fighting a battle. He's throwing punches at these Judaizers for the fight between being saved through works of the law and being saved by faith. So here he keeps throwing punches and he says, you should have known the plain, simple gospel from your experience and you should have known it from the scriptures. The scriptures have always foretold that the gospel would come through promise, not through works of the law. So he goes back to the depths of the Old Testament. He goes all the way back to one of the oldest guys in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, which is Abraham. Have a look in verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham believed God, and he was considered as righteous. But who the heck is Abraham? What's this guy? Well, we know he's way back at the start of the um, the Bible in Genesis, but he's an old sack of bones. He's old. He's got an old wife. They can't have children anymore. But God promises to them that one day they would have a son, even though they're old. So God takes Abraham one day outside and they look at the stars together. He says, you see this great multitude of stars. So shall your descendants be. One day I'll make you into a great nation from your offspring. And Abraham believed God And that was credited to him as righteousness. See that? What was the sequence there? One, God makes a promise to Abraham. Two, Abraham believes the promise that God made to him. And three, because Abraham believes the promise that God made to him, God considers him as righteous. He wasn't considered righteous because he was great at following the law. The law didn't even exist yet. Abraham lived before Moses, the person who gave the law. He was considered righteous because he believed the promise of God. 
So just like Abraham was believed, uh, considered to be righteous because he believed, so we are considered to be righteous because we believe the promise that we're made holy. We're reunited with God by faith in the promise of the gospel that Jesus saves us by his death on the cross. So look at verse 9. Verse 9 finishes there by saying, Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham is a bit of a prototype. I heard a bit about prototypes in one of Jordan's talk. But a prototype is something that you make in order to get the rest of a mass production right. If you get it wrong, it's stupid. Like this um, prototype here, this is the dumbest prototype ever. It's going to give you massive problems. Or this prototype here, if you mass produce that, it's going to suck. But we have a prototype in Abraham you can, yeah, get rid of that slide, it's so gross. We have a prototype of Abraham who's a perfect prototype, who shows us how it is exactly that we're justified before God. We're justified through faith in the promises that God makes, not by works of the law. Works of the law is crazy. The law had nothing to do with making Abraham righteous. These Judaizers who are saying to the Galatians that they need to obey the law are just clearly wrong. They're trying to trump the Galatians with their Jewness. They're saying, because we're Jews, God gave us this law in order to become holy with God. So God gave us these laws to follow. You tick these boxes and you can get to God. Um, the Jews were saying to the Galatians, we have this great relationship with God. So if you want that, if you want a great relationship with God, you need to become like us. But Paul is outdoing them. He's going back to a Jew that's even older than the law. And he's saying, nah, God didn't plan salvation to come by law keeping. It was always by faith. So the Galatians should have known the gospel by two means. They should have known it by their own experience and they should have known it from the scriptures. So Paul seals the deal by saying it's impossible to be justified by works of the law. Read with me from uh, verse 10. Verse 10 says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is any, everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified by God, uh, before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. See at the end there in verse 12, it says that the person who does these things will live by them. The law is performance-based. I remember back when I was 16, I was in a basketball rep team. We called the Springwood Scorchers. We did all right. But we were selected to play for the team because we played well. Right? Or maybe it was just because I was really tall at the time. That's probably why. But the way to stay in the team was by continuing to perform well. It was performance-based. I had to continue. We had to get to practice. There's a lot of pressure to win games. And guess what it looked like? Or guess what happened to the guys who stopped playing well, who stopped turning up to practice and when we started to lose because of them? We just booted them. We got rid of them. No regrets. They're a liability to the team. Good riddance. Get rid of them. 
That's the law. It only works for you. You can only live by the law if you do what it requires. If you succeed in doing what the law requires, you will live. But there's no human that has succeeded in doing what the law requires. So watch out. It's black and white. If you go down that track, you have to do everything that the law requires. And if you don't, it's pretty simple. You just get booted. So Paul says in verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 28. He says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Right, so it's not good enough to get a high distinction or an A plus in the law keeping. You actually need 100%? Yes, fail the law in any part and you failed to keep the whole law. And that's the category that you have to accomplish. If you fail any part of the law, you're under a curse. So in order to not be under a curse, you have to fulfill the whole law. And this is not some um, kind of Harry Potter curse of like, now I bleed lots or something. (laughs) I don't know what Harry Potter curses are. This is the curse of separation from God. It's not this weird magical thing. It's a curse that is separation from God, which is why the blessing of God is to be united with him by his spirit. So if you fail to do everything written in the book of the law, you're under a curse. Look me in the eye and tell me you've never done anything wrong. You might be a great person. You might be as good as it gets. You never told a lie. never took anything from, um, that wasn't yours. You never cheated anyone. You might believe that you've actually kept 100% of the law, but that's crazy if you believe that. Really, you've kept 100% of the law 100% of your life. You've got a few nuts loose if you really think that. But I want you to feel this. Do you know what the greatest commandment of the law is? Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, 37, that it's to love the Lord your God With all your heart, your soul and your mind. Have you always obeyed that commandment of the law? That commandment of the law is telling you to honour and love God as king and creator of the universe, not just in the words that you say, not just in the things that you do, and not just in the things that you think or feel, but in all three all the time. Heavy. How are you going at keeping that commandment of the law. I'm ashamed of myself. I regularly fall short of that commandment of the law. And I'm sure when you take an honest look at yourself, you'll know that you fall short of that commandment of the law as well. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're a lawbreaker just like me. Yet there is one who has perfectly performed the law. He has done everything. He succeeded in obeying the entire works of the law. And he is the only way to be justified before God. There is only one way. It's not through the law. It's through Christ. So have a look in verse 13. Verse 13 says... Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Faced with the reality that it's impossible to be justified before a holy God by works of the law, we can find amazing relief in a Saviour who is able to justify us. Christ who lived perfectly under the law, being fully righteous in God's sight, goes to the cross and dies the death of a criminal. He dies the death of someone unrighteous. He dies the death that you and I deserve. You guys know that part of the story um, of Jesus when he's on trial? We would have looked at this as we go through Easter, but he's on trial before he goes to the cross. And there's this governor, Pontius Pilate, and he's a people pleaser. He wants to keep the crowd happy. So he's got this weird rule that he'll release a prisoner, a criminal, that the, that the crowd once released. And there's this bloke called Barabbas. And Pontius Pilate says to the crowd, who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd shouts, Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Can you imagine how Barabbas feels? He's a criminal. Everyone knows. He's about to be crucified for his crimes. But then instead, he's released and Jesus goes to the cross instead of him. We are Barabbas. We are criminals worthy of death. But Jesus steps in as a substitute and bears the curse for sin for us. So that when you say, I'm with Jesus, I trust in him, God looks at you and sees you as righteous by the merits of Jesus and we're no longer under the penalty of breaking the law. Jesus steps in as our substitute. He steps in, he performs the law perfectly and he steps in as a substitute and goes to the cross instead of us. It's like as if we were football players. We're playing a game and we're getting smashed. We're, getting, we're losing. And Jesus is there and he says, I'll sub in for you. I'll be your substitute. I'll play instead of you. So we step off the field and Jesus steps on and he totally wrecks the other team. He destroys it. While we, we sit on the bench and watch. This is what the majority of our singing proclaims. Jesus stepping in for us as our substitute and going to the cross and purchasing us by his blood spilt. We have a song. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We have another song. Saviour, I come. Quiet my soul, remember Redemption's hill where your blood was spilled for my ransom, everything that I once held dear, I count as lost. Lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Or we have an awesome song, Man of Sorrows, 
sent of heaven, God's own son, to purchase and redeem and reconcile the very ones who nailed him to the tree. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honour unto thee. My debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. These songs are powerful because they're reminding us of the events of the cross. They're reminding us of what Jesus has done to step in for us. I'm going to take a little moment here to talk about music. You know when songs get real, like they get bigger and then they get quieter and they sort of lift your voices up and you proclaim something really loudly when a song is really big and when a song calms down, it's like you're given the space to think and reflect. You're sober about something. You're sober about what Jesus has done. This is called music dynamics, right? Luke Fotheringham would love this. I'm talking about music dynamics. The song is changing in how big or small our voices are. When the song gets really big, don't just get excited by the music. The music sucks compared to what we're singing about. The music is only there, the dynamics are only there to build up the significance of what we're singing about so that when you get to this bridge where it says, now my debt is paid, it's paid in full, we start soft, we start soft and reflect, what has happened? My debt has been paid? The music gives you the space to think about that. But then as we build and grow it bigger, we want you to proudly and yell that out. My debt has been paid. It's paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. So our soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honour unto thee. That's the point of music dynamics. The song grows and builds as we boast about how great our Saviour is. I just wanted to take that moment because singing is such a great opportunity that we get to remind ourselves of these things that Jesus has done. The songs are endless, but I want to encourage you that when you sing them, you're singing them as a reminder of what Jesus did on the cross. That's where his blood was spilled. What saves you? Faith in Christ crucified, not works. Faith is a funny thing. Somehow people think that it, um, it just means believing something against all evidence. Well, that to have faith, you've just got to throw your brain away and not think rationally. But that's not what faith is. There's this guy called Charles Blondin. Uh, he, uh, he's a tightrope walker and he, um, he sets a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he goes to the crowd, who reckons I can push a wheelbarrow across this tightrope? And everyone's like, yeah, you can push a wheelbarrow. So he pushes the wheelbarrow across and he comes back. And he gets to the other side and he says to the crowd again, who reckons I can push this wheelbarrow across to the other side with a person in the wheelbarrow? And everyone's like, yeah, you can do it. And he says, right, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Crickets. That's faith. Faith is trusting someone else with your life. So the Christian, isn't, it's not a blind or a rational faith. 
Faith is in the concrete evidence of the cross, trusting in what Jesus, our substitute for the punishment of what we deserve. We're trusting in what he has done. Have you put your faith in Jesus? If you haven't, it's great to have you with us. I'm so glad you're here. But don't throw your brain out. Use it to investigate the things of the Bible and Jesus' death on the cross. You'll soon find that the Bible is a reliable, historic, concrete, um, that Jesus was a real man, that he walked the streets of Palestine. Make an informed decision about who he is. It would be throwing your brain away to not look at the evidences that there are. What's the temptation when we get this truth? That it's just by placing our faith in Christ crucified that that's what saves us? What's the temptation when we get that? Well, I'm tempted to feel that my part in my own salvation is too little. Surely I have to do something more than just believe in the promises of God. Surely I have to work to get there. Surely I have to work for it. We struggle because the message of Christ crucified is offensive to our capacity to save ourselves. We'd like to think that we've got this. We can dig ourselves out of this hole. I'm a good person. I can make up for the bad things that I've done. I remember um, I was saved when I was 16. Someone was preaching to me this exact kind of message that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, that Christ is a substitute. All I have to do is place my faith in him. And I did. I believed and I was saved that day. But as a few years went past, I began to think that I was a pretty good guy. I began to think that I was acceptable to God because of how good I had become. Arrogance grew in me as I considered how few the things were that I'd done wrong. Surely I was acceptable to God. Look at how few the things are that I've done wrong. And I literally began to count them on my hand. This really happened. And I started off, I was thinking, yeah, I've done that thing wrong. I've done that thing wrong. Three things wrong. I've done four things wrong. Actually, not five. But... This is crazy. God broke me. I quickly ran out of fingers to count on it. I was flooded with the realization of how sinful I was, so sinful that I could even consider that I was righteous because of how little I had done wrong. And then I was overwhelmed as I realized that the stain of my sin had been washed away with the blood of Jesus. This happened to me as I was getting ready to go out to a party and I I was wrecked by this. I thought, but I thought I'd I'd sort of processed it all. I thought I was okay. So I thought I'll I'll go to the party anyway. But I was continually hit with waves of guilt over my sin, convicted by my sin, and then waves of relief as I realized God had washed me clean of the sin. I literally sat in the corner of the room under a blanket, the whole party, to hide the flood of tears that came from my eyes. 
the purpose of the law is to condemn you, not justify you. The law only makes you realize what you've done to break it, teaching you that you can't keep the law. To realize that you need somebody to save you from it. And this doesn't make the law pointless. God put the law in place so that when we inevitably claim that we can be justified by keeping the law, we can look at a history of our law keeping and know that we can't. For me, the greatest moments of joy are not when the surf's good, it's not when the sun's out after a week of rain. It's not when I got my peas and I finally had my, the freedom to drive anywhere I wanted. It's not when I finished school or uni and I was free from the study regime. It's not even when I got married to my wonderful wife. It's not when I watched the birth of my beautiful daughter. My greatest moments of joy are when I look at the cross and I see my Saviour who has paid the debt of my sin. By, by bearing the curse of the law, that is separation between me and God, and has brought me close to him. He's dealt with the penalty that I rightly deserve. So Paul says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? That was me. Don't let it be you. Don't pretend that you're good enough to be saved. Recognize that you're a sinner just like the rest of us. You need someone to save you. Put your faith in the only gospel that saves, that Christ was crucified to redeem guilty sinners. Yes, we're tempted to try and contribute to our salvation by doing good things, but we really can't contribute anything. Yes, you've just got to believe the promise that you're forgiven by Jesus' death on the cross as a substitute to save you from the wrath of God that you rightly deserve. When you think of how you're saved, think of Christ crucified. The gospel is clear. It's clearly portrayed to you. It's simple. Christ crucified. Remember that. Think back to it. When you sing, ponder on the things of Christ crucified. Keep Christ crucified clear in your mind because only by faith in Christ crucified can you be saved. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that you've sent your Son to rescue and redeem us from the penalty of our sin that we so rightly deserve. We're sorry for the times that we think we can become righteous by our own means, by works of the law. We're sorry for how offensive that is to the death of Jesus on the cross. We pray that we would always look to the cross. We would always have Christ crucified in our minds and be filled with absolute thanks and joy for the work that's been done for us, for saving us out of a problem that we couldn't fix ourselves. 
Father, I pray that we'll live this out in our lives, that we could lean on you and fully depend on you, that would throw away all the strength of our own efforts and see you as sufficient, you as full, you as being able to completely wash away the stain of our sin. Father, I pray that that would be big in our lives, that as a Christian community we would always hold to that truth that we're saved by Christ crucified. We pray that the people around us would see the significance of the cross. We thank you for Easter, that it's a reminder that Jesus died, but he rose again, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering Satan. We thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to look into these things. We pray that you would impress them on our hearts. And we pray this in your son's mighty name. Amen.